Hey, welcome everybody to Not So Famous Achievers. Weekly conversations with some of the world's most amazing but not so famous achievers on what they did and how they did it and what you can learn from their journey. With your hosts, Will Christ and Robert White. Hey guys. Hey, welcome to everyone and uh, and thanks for the great introduction, Paul. We have a very special guest today. Coach Michael Taylor is an entrepreneur. He's a friend, I have to admit that. Uh, he's an author of eight books, so I'm insanely jealous. Uh, Michael's a, a talented motivational speaker. He hosts a couple of uh, radio and TV shows. So in a way, he kind of violates our not so famous part. He's a bit famous, but Michael knows a lot about overcoming adversity, about surviving some tough stuff in life and how to build a really rewarding and fulfilling life. And he's been sharing knowledge, that knowledge with others for, for many years. He's an incredible uh, husband. He's an incredible talent. He's just a, a good friend and full self-revealing. In his latest book, I had the absolute honor of writing the foreword. So good morning and welcome, Michael. Good morning and welcome, Robert. And thank you so much for having me. I love the, the layout of the show, the ones that who are not so famous, but who are actually committed to making the world a little bit better. So thank you for having this platform that allows me to share. And of course, I get a chance to introduce you to my dear friend, Will Christ. And uh, Will's background, Michael, is one that complements mine and complements yours because he's a genius when it comes to actually execution in companies, especially the kind of uh, a company that, that's growth-oriented, one that really wants to do something other people perhaps have not done. So uh, let me introduce you to Will. Hey, Michael. What's going on, Mr. Will? So what are we doing? Are we, you're in uh, Denver, is that right? I'm in Texas. Oh, oh, oh tell me where. <laughs> I'm in Houston. Houston. My my uh, my family lives outside in Magnolia. Know exactly where that is. Right. But we grew up in uh, Edinburgh, way down the Rio Grande Valley. So how did you get to Houston? Well, actually, I was born in Corpus Christi, <laughs> and I I couldn't wait to leave because Corpus felt so confining and small. I wanted to get to the big city. But I actually went up to Austin first, worked there, and then moved to Houston later. But I call Houston home. Houston is where I feel most comfortable. Well, you know, that was the same. My experience was the same in the Rio Grande Valley. And my wife's, too. We grew up about eight miles from each other, never knew each other until, until I was 30. But, but our whole thrust after high school was to get out of the Rio Grande Valley. She wound up at Berkeley. And, and I wound up in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it was like, we, we never knew that humidity and heat <laughs> were not the natural parts of life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, this is how I ended up in Colorado. When I left Asia, uh, I was blessed to have been able to live anywhere that I wanted in the world. And uh, I chose the place that had low humidity. Uh, <laughs> so. We got up there and it was like, it, I mean, uh, it, when I le left and, and went to Boston, it was like, wow. I mean, it, not only is it cool, but 
but it's it's I'm not sweating every time. <laughs> this is a different kind of life. You know, uh, Michael, I did the kind of standard introduction of you and one that I hope honors my respect and love for you. But you were not always the rich and famous guy you are today with big goals and, and a big dream. Uh, you've had your share of challenges in your life. I think it would be useful if you could summarize some of that background uh, for our listeners. Yeah, well, I was born in the inner city projects of Corpus Christi, Texas, to a single mom with six kids. And we were basically the poster children for poverty back in the 60s. <laughs> and when I was in the 11th grade, I decided to drop out of high school because I had a guy convince me that I could get rich selling vacuum cleaners. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a poor choice. But, you know, interestingly enough, it taught me a very valuable lesson. And that lesson was I wasn't afraid to take risk. So I really see it as an attribute. And so even though I never sold a single vacuum cleaner, I got lucky. Actually, I didn't get lucky. I was fortunate enough to land a job with this building supply center. I worked extremely hard and I climbed the corporate ladder. And at the age of 23, I was living the American dream. I had the house, the wife, the 2.5 kids and all of that. And by society standards, I had succeeded. And within approximately a six and a half year time frame, that American dream turned into the American nightmare as I went through a divorce, bankruptcy, oh. a oh. foreclosure, a deep state of depression. I was actually homeless for two years living out of my car. Oh. And during the darkest period of my life, I received a miracle. I was sitting up late one night because I was too depressed to sleep. And I was sitting at the edge of my bed, looking across the room at my bookshelf, when I happened to notice that every book on my bookshelf had something to do with getting rich or making money. And as I looked at those books, this question just popped in my head. Michael, what if you took all the energy and effort you've used in trying to get rich and simply figure out how to be happy? All right. And <laughs> as, as simplistic as that question sounds, it literally changed and saved my life in an instant because something in me shifted. And all of a sudden, my depression lifted and I had this amazing clarity that I was going to be able to rebuild my life. And as a result of asking that question, I stopped reading books on getting rich and making money. I started reading books on psychology and philosophy and spirituality and personal development. I went on this amazing journey of transformation. And as a result, I was able to rebuild my life. And now I'm living my version of an extraordinary one. Wow. Well, thank you, know, you for uh, thank you for weaving in extraordinary. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the publicity for my book, <laughs> Living an Extraordinary Life. Uh, Michael, our connection started with uh, you know many years ago. I founded and led a company called LifeSpring, and uh, that's one of the steps in your uh, journey, uh, attending that high impact experiential learning event. I know that it it still lives for you in your life, but how does it show up for you? I mean, what was it about that experience that changed uh, so much in your life? Well, LifeSpring was the second most impactful thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, when I went to the LifeSpring trainings, I was in the middle of my depression, trying to figure out you know, where I was going with my life. And I was, I was really confused because I had done everything society said I was supposed to do, and yet I was absolutely miserable. And interesting story, 
I was sitting at, at, at work one day because I was so depressed and I was sitting in my office and I was reading a USA Today newspaper. And in the center section of that newspaper, there was this huge cruise ship going across the top and there were a bunch of little articles about things to do for the summer. And because of my depression, I thought, hmm, I'll take a cruise. That'll help lift my depression. <laughs> well, at the very bottom of that section, there was a little two or three sentence blurb that said something to the effect of, are you ready to take your life on or something like that? And it gave a phone number. And I called that phone number and that's how I was actually introduced to the LifeSpring trainings. And so when, when I went through the trainings, uh, what I came to understand was that most of my life I had been looking outside of myself and I had not learned how to look within to, and to understand that I was completely responsible for my life being the way that it was. And it gave me the tools of awareness to change my life. It helped me recognize that I was the source of all of it. And if I wanted my life to change, I had to be willing to change. And so that, that training, again, opened that door for me in terms of personal growth and development. And the things that I learned in LifeSpring, I'm still implementing in my life today. Wow, that, uh, that's an incredible testimonial. First, to your commitment, uh, and perhaps to God's grace to guide you to that little three-liner or whatever it was in the, in the newspaper. But you know, that was uh, that, that, uh, David Sandler, the guy who started Sandler sales training. He started off with his, his training program with an ad in various newspapers that simply said, sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he put the number under it. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, sometimes it's those, those one, one time running ads that change your life. That's amazing, right? And, and I don't think it's just, it wasn't just random. It wasn't just random because there's something there that helps us to pick that out. Well, it is my, it is my belief that there's a divine intelligence that permeates the universe and we have access to this intelligence. It is my belief that it was that intelligence that guided me, pointed me to that particular little blurb and has been guiding me my entire life. And what, what I believe that in order to, to see those blurbs, to hear that voice that you heard, that we have to let go, we have to surrender part of ourselves. You can call it the ego, call it the old man, call it whatever you want, but we have to surrender that to get on the roller coaster that is this divine experience. Yeah. And, and, and from a spiritual perspective, I, I see divine synchronicities all the time. I am so tuned in now that when those little things happen, those little tidbits that the universe puts in front of me, I can immediately recognize them. Back then, I had no clue. But now I can see it very clearly. You know, in the ex executives that I work with, uh, Michael, uh, I, I notice two patterns. One is people that are stuck, you know, they're uh, something's keeping them up late at night. Uh, maybe their sleep patterns change or their eating patterns change. Something happens that's just not working for them. That's one group of people that I work with uh, at the CEO level. The other level are people that just have this really clear vision of what they want to create. And they know that the way they're wired or the way their top team operates together, 
that their leadership is inadequate to what they want to create. And uh, so both, both uh, of those conditions tend to wake people up. Uh, for our listeners who are primarily executives, what is it that wakes people up in your experience? What, what does it take to make that next step, read that book, go to that training, get a coach, uh, get a mentor? What, in your experience, what is it? Well, I think there are only two things that will cause a person to want to change. One is pain, and the other is what I call divine discontent. It is that inner knowing, that inner feeling that something's just off, something's not right. Now, when I went through my divorce, I, I was driven by pain primarily, but there was also a part of me that intuitively knew that my life could be better. There was a part of me that intuitively knew that I wasn't living up to my fullest potential. And so the challenge I believe for most people is to simply be willing to learn, to listen to that still small voice within us. Because that still small voice, which I would maybe label our intuition, will guide us to next steps on our, along our journey. And so I think, again, that, that, that pain factor is what challenges most people to change because most of us are too afraid to change until we're in a situation where there's so much pain, we don't have any choice. And so what I try to do is minimize that pain for people and help them recognize there's a different way to see things. There's a different way to process what you're going through and you can move through it, but I can provide you with some tools that helps you. And I think that's what you do, Robert. But is there a, a sense that, that when you're talking about that pain, that, that pain, it, 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 what creates that pain is our belief in scarcity. Okay. And, and, when, and, and part, of us, part of us wants to work really, really hard to avoid hitting the edge of that scarcity. And, and when we are uh, pushed to that limit and we recognize we cannot do anything or we've run out of ideas, there's just nothing more. When we give in to that, then all of a sudden we discover an abundance that's there. Yeah, and here's another way to look at pain, though, um, because the most impactful thing that I've ever done, I mentioned life spinning was the second, but the most impactful thing I've ever done was I did a workshop with a guy named John Bradshaw. And John Bradshaw was a psychologist. Um, unfortunately, he passed away, but he had a workshop called Healing the Inner Child. And in this workshop, I identified a lot of the sources of my pain and trauma. And so I possibly had the worst childhood a person could have. Every imaginable type of abuse I experienced between the ages of six and 13. And so what I've come to understand is that trauma, that pain that I experienced early on set in motion these defense mechanisms that I hid behind. One of the defense mechanisms I hid behind was the I'm okay, Mr. Nice Guy mask. And so I went around and I had this insatiable need for approval. I was always worried about what people thought about me. I was just a Mr. Nice Guy. But when I did John Bradshaw's work, what it did was it allowed me to understand the origin of my behaviors. The origin of my behaviors was the trauma that I experienced as a kid. 
Now, again, that training with John Bradshaw helped me heal those emotional scars that I had been carrying around. Now, I had done Life Spring. I had done the Anthony Robbins Walking on Hot Coals, NLP, Study the Mind. I had done all of that, but it wasn't until I did John Bradshaw's work that I got to the source of my pain and trauma, and I was able to heal that. And I think that's something that a lot of people try to skip over. If we have those traumatic events in our lives, we can't intellectualize ourselves out of it. We must be willing to heal it and feel yeah. it, feel it and heal it. And that's a process. You know, there's a, there's, there's a wonderful book by, uh, uh, that's called it, My Grandmother's Hands. And, mm -hmm. and, and what I found, he, he, what he's talking about is, is he's talking about the trauma that uh, underrepresented people, uh, uh, they're not only black folks, but they're also Native American folks, or they're folks that have, have been oppressed, right, and, and had trauma. And one of the things that I found astounding in it is when he talks about the trauma that his that he saw from his grandmother's hands. I mean, she was picking cotton when you know before he was around. But he he also says that we also have trauma with the police. When you think about what police and first responders go through every day, and they don't recognize it as trauma. And there's not any real processing of that trauma. It it it, it just creates this this incredible uh, confusion out on the streets. And that 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 what you're talking about is how to deal with that trauma, whether it's historic or whether it's present day trauma. That's got to be processed before we can really be open to the abundance that's there, right? Absolutely. But there's collective trauma, which is what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But I think the real challenge is individual trauma. Yes. Being willing to look at the events in our lives that shape us individually. For example, for me, uh, those six, those seven years that I talked about between six and 13, that experience physically, emotionally, sexually, that trauma lived in my body because I didn't have an outlet to release it, to let go of it, to get the support, to deal with it. So what happens is we create these defense mechanisms. Now, one of my defense mechanisms was being smart and being successful because I was so filled with shame. I mm. thought, okay, if I have these successes, people will like me, right? So it was triggered by that early childhood trauma. This, this, this drive to succeed at the beginning was, was actually shame-based. And so when I did John Bradshaw's work and I started healing that shame, I came to understand that, yes, I could be successful, I could be happy, I could be rich, whatever, without the shame attached to it. And so processing that shame and moving through some of those unhealed traumas, I think, is the reason so many people, even as entrepreneurs, are unhappy because there's stuff that they haven't dealt with. You know, my experience in working with executives is that they are masterful at avoiding uh, things that happened in their past that they carry as a burden. They're masterful because they are focused, they are aligned to a, a bigger vision. Uh, they Maybe some of it's ego and I don't care where it comes from, but they're so driven that they're able to succeed in life. But what's missing for them in terms of joy and satisfaction is that kind of unhealed or 
uh, still carried with them garbage from the past. And uh, uh, so they succeed, and I, I'm an example of that. You know, I was living in a 15,000 square foot home and uh, flying around in my own jet. And, uh, you know, life was perfect in terms of appearances. But because I had not handled some things from my past, mm -hmm. I wasn't experiencing joy and satisfaction. You know, Michael, before we get off, you know, and these things kind of tend to go pretty fast. I, you know, in a way, I feel like I know you well because of your books. <laughs> and also, I think that we need to talk about this last one that you wrote. But I noticed in this Zoom call, Yoda. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that we shared this great philosopher and teacher, <laughs> Yoda, and my Yoda, the one that that talked. Does yours talk? Yep. Yep. My Yoda somehow in moving from. Uh, the U.S. to Japan to the U.S. to China has disappeared. I have oh. lost my Yoda. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious uh, 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 what Yoda is saying to you these days. Well, when I was 17 years old, Star Wars came out, the summer of 1977. I saw the original Star Wars film in the theater 21 times that, <laughs> that movie had such a profound impact on me and i couldn't figure out why now over the past 25 years or so in on this growth journey that i've been on what i recognize is what was so appealing to it was that whole story of the hero's journey and i actually really related to and connected to that hero's journey within that movie because it was reflective of my own life and so Yoda is just one of my favorite mentors. Well, they, learning from fables uh, like that, the, the fable that Star Wars is based on, uh, it's very powerful learning. And it's at a very, actually a very deep level. So when I think whatever a talent can do entertainment, that also teaches, that's, that's incredible. Now, in your latest book, you talk about the media and the myths that uh, particularly black men have been subjected to. I mean, you're talking to a couple of old white guys here, but, uh, and that book is so rich and so full and I highly recommend it. Uh, can you summarize the, a part of it for our listeners, for, for particularly for people that are running organizations and having to deal with diversity, maybe at a deeper level than they ever have had to before? Uh, have you got something to say that might be of value to them? Well, first of all, it is my belief that race relations are not getting worse in this country. I do not, I do not believe that. I think because of technology, we see a lot of the things that have been hidden in the past, if you will. Uh, in the book, I talk about what I call the CWBS, which is the Collective White Belief System. Yeah. And, 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 and what I frame that as is that if you think about this country, we're still relatively young. And there was a time in this country when the majority of white people had a mindset or a collective white belief system that was racist. And as a result of that, they created racist policies that unfortunately still apply today in some ways. But I believe every generation is less and less racist because I believe in human evolution and the evolution of consciousness. And so what I'm seeing, despite what we see throughout the media, 
is humanity is actually waking up. And we are actually moving in a direction where we will get to a place at one point where we'll recognize and appreciate people of all ethnicity, people of all genders, people of all sexual preferences. We're moving to that in that direction. And as a man who happens to be black, I get a lot of pushback from the black community saying that I'm denying that the challenges exist. Well, I'm not denying the challenges exist. I'm saying my perception is humanity is moving forward. We're not going backwards. And if I look at my short 60 year lifespan, the progress that this country has made in race relations, how can I not be optimistic? I remember as a young black man, segregation and, and sitting in the room and not seeing black people on television and, and having conversations with my grandfather about racism and slavery and all of that and how painful that was. Yeah. But again, as I look at the younger generation, they're not exposed to that. They see, and if you see who's, you know, marching in the protest these days and these young activists that are speaking out, see, I believe the consciousness is shifting and I'm extremely optimistic about the future of race relations. And I, I put that into one of the chapters. Well, Will, I think now you know why I was so eager to invite Michael uh, to our little get together. Right. So let's take a short break here and come back. And I want to hear more about this. I'm going to ask some questions about uh, about what people can do for both healing their own trauma and also for participating in this awakening that I think we're seeing, not only nationally, but globally. So we'll be right back. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Be a reader, tutor or mentor. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge now at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. The Wooden Floor is a nationally recognized, award-winning nonprofit that gives underserved Orange County youth the tools to live fuller, healthier lives through a unique approach grounded in dance. The Wooden Floor makes a long-term investment in these young people, providing free intensive dance education supported by academic and family services. The result is students graduate high school and attend college at a rate about three times greater than their peers. Find out more at thewoodenfloor.org. <laughs> He's animated, he moves, he talks, and he's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, well, here we are back. Here we are back now. Michael, what, I, I got two questions, and this will probably take up the rest of our time. But one question is, uh, John Bradshaw, uh, that I, you know, one of my mentors, I didn't know him personally, but reading uh, uh, his story about trauma and family and how to discover you know, how to love the rest of your family and rediscover that kind of love was very important to me. Uh, so I want to ask, where do people go today to have that kind of experience of healing? And then secondly, I want to talk more about how we all, not just the white guys, but how we all participate in this global awakening that, that we see happening. So, you know, where, where, where can people go? Well, again, I'm, I'm an optimist, and the lens through which I see the world says that there are so many 
podcasts and videos and online courses today that deal with just about anything you want to deal with. So the first question I think we have to ask ourselves is, am I genuinely happy with my life? And if not, what do I need to do to become genuinely happy? Now, most of the time when someone asks themselves that question, they'll start thinking about, okay, do I need a new job? Or do I need a new car? Or do I need something outside of me to become happy? But the challenge is to start looking within. As I mentioned, I, I was that guy. You know, I was the guy that wanted the material stuff and all of that. So the first place I think it needs to start for anyone is the three most difficult words any human being can say, which is, I need help. The first place is for us to be willing to simply admit that we need support, we need help in order to change or transform our lives. So I think that's where it starts. Um, and once we start there, then we have to start learning to trust that still small voice within ourselves that will guide us to next steps. Um, so I absolutely love that idea because I remember how difficult it was for me at the beginning because I got to a point in my life where there were only two choices I had. One was to get help and the other was to die. There was no gray area. So I had to choose and I chose to live. I chose to live. So every person has to make that choice that I wanna transform, I wanna change, I wanna become better, if you will, and then start listening to the universe to start guiding you to the next steps of what you need to do, be it reading a book or listening to one of these programs or buying an audio or reading a, a little blurb in a newspaper that the universe starts guiding us to go where we need to go next. So, so would, you, would you agree with me that, that children are born with this joy, this happiness, and that it is part of life that overlays it, breaks it up, distracts us from that. And then part of the journey that I hear you talking about is to recover that by removing, resolving some of the trauma, uh, find, uh, changing the, you know, challenging the cultural need to consume and to, to succeed, to recover that joy that, that allows us to say, when we pick up the phone and somebody says, how are you? I'm having a ball. So here's, here's a way to look at it. And again, this is just Michael Taylor's perception, if you will. So when we're first born, okay, so imagine we're born and we end up in this, just, let's just imagine we end up in this room and it's a completely white room and there's a cot in this room and it's just two aspects of ourselves. There's what I call the little S self and the big S self. It's two aspects of us, our humanity. So when we're first born, the big S self, the real us, the authentic us, stands up and is kind of watching and moving through the world and navigating while the little S self lays on the cot. Now, I believe the little S self's job is to protect us from pain. So what happens is when we experience pain, the little S self gets up, the big S self lays down on the cot. The little S self's job is to create these defense mechanisms to protect us. Now, some people might call that the ego, but see, some people see the ego as a bad thing. I don't, I see it as an aspect of ourselves. And the job of the ego is to protect us. So what happens is 
we experience pain, and if we don't allow ourselves to heal that pain, we will always operate from that little s self. When we do our healing work, it's like getting the big s self off the cot, and we're now operating from the big s self. And so I believe the process of transformation is the process of waking up that big S self, recognizing that the ego, the little S self is still there. It's a part of us, but it no longer controls the show. Right. And so I think, I think that's what we're heading towards. We're wanting to always operate from that big S self. And the big S self being able to say to the little S, it's okay. Absolutely. It's okay. Absolutely. You know, they, uh, something that I've done for about five or six years in dealing with large groups of executives is that if I can build some trust, I ask either one or two of these questions. One question is, how many of you are essentially estranged, separated from some member of your own family? <laughs> it's a, a, a difficult question, I would think, as I've thought about it over the years, uh, first of all, I'm an example of that. I have estrangement personally, so which is what got me started asking the question. But 70% uh, is the number that I come up with over time, over five years, many, many audiences. And the second question is, how many of you have been betrayed, either personally or in business? The number of executives that answer yes to that question is 100%. So there's a lot of damage. You know, we can talk about some of these things as, uh, and almost we start processing it as theory. This is real in people's lives, including senior executives. Again, because they are powerful, because they are focused, because they are ambitious, they bury it, they hide it, but it's there. It affects their hiring decisions, their promotion decisions. It affects their own, of course, joy and satisfaction, but it actually shows up in the workplace. And uh, that, that picture of the big S and the small S, or, you know, there was a book years ago that I read that I don't recommend, but I love the title, Big Me or Little Me. You know, where do, where do we come from in our executive decisions and in our personal lives? And uh, I, I like your metaphor, Michael. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, and here, here's, here's another thing that I believe. And this is the challenge, and especially for entrepreneurs, I think. When you start thinking about the little S self and the big S self, I like to think of it from the standpoint of thinking and feeling. I believe we think too much and feel too little. Yeah. And what I mean by that is when we learn to feel and we trust the big S self, we get into that state of connection with the universe, I believe. And so feeling is the language of the soul. And when I can learn to trust that inner wisdom in me, it's a feeling. It's, it's something that you can't rationalize. You, you feel it. And when we can get to that place of connecting to the big S self and trusting, I, I, I love that you brought that up, uh, Robert, trusting, learning to trust that big S self, learning to trust that divine wisdom within us, then I believe it will guide us to be the best entrepreneurs, the best husbands, the best fathers we can be. But we, we get so trapped into thinking and rationalizing and analyzing everything, which I believe primarily is the little less self, that we disconnect from the heart. And that's where we want to be, I think, connected to the heart. 
You know, one of the things that I found back in 2016 with the election, it was, it caught me by surprise. And, and in reflecting on it, I realized that I personally had discounted a lot of people. I had said, you know, they're uh, not worth listening to. Uh, uh, you know, it turns out that a lot of those people were, had been, had been lost their jobs because of NAFTA or, or just globalization or change in the way that we are, jobs work. And, and I had discounted all of that and not listened to them, not paid attention to them. I didn't, didn't go out of my way to find it. And, and I felt that, that loss. And, and I recognized it wasn't one person that was causing me anxiety. It was me. And, and, and I, I began asking, well, given that that's true, what should I do? Should I go to West Virginia and sit there and meet people? Or where am I disconnected? And I realized it was my brother. Mm. My brother is a flat earther. <laughs> and my wife and I had systematically put him down, laughed about him behind his back, not talked with him about anything that was important, thinking he was stupid. And I had to, had to really take a look at that and recover my relationship with my brother. I mean, come on. Because he believes in flat earth does not change what NASA's program is for the next 20 years. And, and when, when I could do that and approach him as a human being, rather than whatever I particularly box I wanted to put him in for that day, I, I began to realize that he was living next to my mother, who was 80 years old. Every day at five o'clock, he was there for dinner with her. He was in Magnolia and I'm in California. So he was taking care of her when she died six months ago. And it was time for my other brother and I to start thinking about how are we paying for the funeral expenses. That brother said, oh, we've already taken care of that. Don't worry about it. We put money aside for that. That guy is a wonderful guy. That he's a flat earther no longer matters to me. And now, I think that's part of our waking up as a culture is recognizing that for so long we have put people in, we have been in a box, putting people, turning them into objects and then discounting them and, and recognizing it's not just Black Lives Matter, it's not just Blue Lives Matter, it's, it's people, it's people. And how do we how do we get out of the box that we've allowed people to put us in and start living as people? Well, I think it would be helpful to stop paying attention to the media as a beginning <laughs> part. But mm -hmm. Michael, we're coming to the end of our program. And uh, so what's your message today for the executives that participate in this uh, conversation with the not so famous achievers. Uh, what's a core message for you today in terms of, uh, particularly in terms of some of the stress that executives and our entire society is experiencing around race, around politics, around religion, uh, around all the buzzwords, but that ultimately add up to, as with Will, as what Will just shared, 
to a personal issue, to personal estrangement, to personal betrayals, to the things that have happened to us that don't prepare us very well for the future. Well, you know, the original title of the book was Don't Believe the Hype of the Negative Media. So that's, that's, that's my first message. Don't believe the hype of the negative media because my perception is there are a lot more things that are right with the world than are wrong with it. And as they say, what you focus on expands. And so if you're focusing on all of the negativity, that's going to expand in your environment, in your thinking, in your actions. I honestly believe that every human being is connected to divine intelligence. And when we connect to divine intelligence, we have access to be, to do, or to have anything we set our minds to. And so if we will focus our attention on becoming the best version of ourselves, I love, there's a guy named Neil Donald Walsh who wrote a series of books called Conversations with God. And he said, our purpose is to become the grandest version of the greatest vision we hold for ourselves as human beings. And I love that because that's where my attention is. I'm always focused on becoming the best version of myself. So focus your attention on becoming the best version of yourself and the world will automatically heal. Wow, that's uh, more than a little inspiring. Michael, if people want to connect with you personally, how do they do that? Simple, just find me online at coachmichaeltaylor.com or any social media property at Coach Michael Taylor. Well, I count on Will to uh, wrap all of these things up and put a pretty bow on the package. <laughs> <laughs> so, Will, share some wisdom with us. Well, I think I think uh, you know I think one of the things that that I do when I'm working with with businesses through the entrepreneurial operating system is I, I made it, Michael, I made a, a choice several years ago to not be a coach, but to work with an operating system because I, I believed that it gave more more leverage to the whole enterprise. It ultimately affects everybody in the organization. Sometimes sometimes the, the, the entrepreneurs or the leadership team, some of them might be so damaged that they do need a coach or they may have such high aspirations that a coach would be valuable to them. If it's only, if they only seek to change with a coach, it puts them in a spot where they have to do so much work to extend that into the organization to make the changes. And so uh, I believe that many of the, the uh, leaders that I'm working with in the entrepreneurial operating so, uh, system will benefit from coaching and benefit from that kind of challenge to help them move forward or to remove the things that are holding them back. And, and, and so what I've found is that, that the change that we're talking about, the waking up, is happening in business at a tremendous rate. I mean, we're going to have 100,000 companies that have implemented EOS with implementers by 2030. That's going to have a huge impact on how people see each other in those businesses. Because when, when people at even... We, we could call it the lowest level, but people at, when they're the field people or the people in manufacturing on the floor, when they are living the EOS life, only doing what they love doing, only working with people they enjoy working with, making a great contribution and they know it, 
they're being paid appropriately and they have plenty of time for family and other passions. When you look at a hundred thousand companies doing that with, with average of 50 employees, that's a very significant amount of change that's going on in the world. And I agree with you that we're in the process of a big awakening. And I think Neil, Neil, <laughs> Neil Donald Walsh was one of the earlier precursors to help us to understand that. So I really appreciate you being here. And, and now, is, is your last book the one that you would suggest people read? Yes. I, I, again, because it's, it has nothing to do with race, but it has everything to do with race. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, it's about what can we do to recognize that the, the future is brighter than most people think? Um, you know, there's, there's a chapter on some of the evolving technologies and how it's changing the world for the better. I talk about the importance of love and relationships and all those things that, you know, we all look for because every human being wants four primary things, I believe. They want inner peace, dynamic health, great relationships, and financial abundance. Sum it all up. That's, we all want the same thing. And this book sort of helps guide them to get that. And didn't the creator want that for us too? Absolutely. Oh, oh. <laughs> Good one, Will. Way to go. <laughs> That's what this is all about to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, when I was promoting my book, uh, Living an Extraordinary Life, the question that got asked most often by interviewers was about one sentence in the book, which is life is simple. This does not mean it's easy. Uh, life is actually simple. The great teachers have educated us about that for thousands of years. Lao Tzu and Jesus Christ and, and Confucius and, and more recently, Napoleon Hill. Uh, you know, it, and, uh, and for that matter, John Bradshaw. Life is simple. It's just not easy sometimes. And uh, gathering together uh, to look at principles, to look at things through that positive lens that uh, Michael is talking about, it can change everything for not just for us, but for society as a whole. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I feel really, really blessed to have been in it. Well, and, and this is the first, Michael, of many conversations that we're going to have because I believe that, that even more than uh, conversations with the rich and famous, <laughs> it's those folks who have a kind of a, a sense of, of uh, enough, a sense of abundance, uh, a sense of sharing and giving that may not hit the front page, yeah. but being successful, not so famous. And that's what we're going to be looking at. All right. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael. Thank you, Robert, for introducing us. Well, there you have it. Another reason why you got to come back and join us each and every time as we talk with some very successful, but maybe not so well-known entrepreneurs on what they did. Dot net.